Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 40. In the last episode, I wrapped up the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua, a task that only took 39 weeks. In this episode, I'll attempt to summarize that book in 30 minutes or less, so that the next episode can begin a new chapter for the podcast, the book of Judges. And with that, let's get started, as time's a-wasting. The book of Joshua chronicles the story of the Israelites from just before crossing the Jordan River, after the 40 years of post-Exodus wanderings, then the conquest of Canaan. The narrative tells of the military campaigns of the Israelites in central, then southern, then northern Canaan, how the Israelites destroyed their enemies, how the territory gained was divided between the eleven tribes, as Moses had directed, then how the twelfth tribe, Levi, was allotted cities throughout the land. As far as the writing of the book goes, Jewish tradition holds that Joshua wrote it himself. In the book, and in addition to the historical narrative, are a few speeches. The first speech records God addressing Joshua, giving instruction to the freshly minted leader, telling him what he's to lead the people to do, and wrapping it up by telling Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for God is with you wherever you go. The second speech is one Joshua gives the people. He tells them to prepare their provisions, for they are about to cross the Jordan River and take the land God is giving them. He then reminds the tribes of Reuben Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, that though they may already be settled east of the Jordan, that their warriors are expected to cross with the other tribes to seize Canaanite territory. All of the Israelites respond that they will go wherever Joshua sends them. In preparation for the invasion, Joshua sends two spies to check out Jericho, a city just over the part of the Jordan River where the Israelites will cross. When they get to the city, they find a confederate in a Canaanite woman named Rahab. They go to her house and spend the night. The king of Jericho hears there may be spies in her house and demands that Rahab give them up. But she balks, telling the king that she doesn't know where they are. Then we learn that the walled city has a gate that's closed at night, with Rahab telling the king the men left before the gate was closed. She then takes it a bit further urging the king to have his men chase after them, and if they do, they probably will catch the spies. The king's men set off, but it was getting dark, and as soon as they left the confines of the city, the sun set and the gate was closed behind them. The pair of Israelite spies hadn't fled and instead were hiding on Rahab's roof. After dark, Rahab went up to the roof and let the men know why the king was worried. Word of God being with the Israelites had made it all the way to Jericho. That night, she dropped a rope from a window, so the men could climb down and escape the city. She also tells the men which way the king's men had traveled, then advised them to hide in the hill country for three days. Before the two spies leave, they tell her that when the Israelites invade, she and her family should hide in her house and tie a crimson cord to the window, so that all the Israelites know to leave her house alone. The spies left, headed for the hills, where they hid for three days. After that, they returned to the Israelites' camp on the other side of the Jordan, reporting to Joshua. 
He was pleased the residents of Jericho had heard of them and were afraid. The next day, Joshua leads the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan, where they encamp for three days. Then they cross the river with the ark leading the way. We're told this happened during the time of the harvest, when the Jordan was overflowing its banks. Despite the flooding, as they crossed, the water stopped, leaving the riverbed dry. Just as almost everyone is out of the dry riverbed, with only the priests carrying the ark remaining, twelve men, one from each tribe, gather twelve stones, placing them on the west bank to serve as a reminder of the dry crossing. Joshua did the same with twelve stones, setting them up in the river, where they remained. The priests finally crossed, and the river returned to its normal flood. Soon after they crossed, all the local kings in Canaan heard about it and became afraid and disheartened. God tells Joshua to have all the males circumcised, and they remained encamped near the Jordan until they healed. A few days later, the Israelites celebrated their first Passover in Canaan, and the manna they'd been eating for 40 years stopped. After this, the army marched to Jericho, where they found the gate shut and the king waiting. Joshua follows God's instructions, assembling the troops, then making a lap around the city, sounding their trumpets, one lap per day for six days. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. The people gave out a great shout, and the walls came down, just like God had promised. The city was taken and burned, leaving only Rahab and her family alive. Then, everyone went back to the encampment. They were only supposed to take the precious metals from the defeated and for the tabernacle, but one soldier took some for himself. More on that in a minute. Joshua then sends spies to check out the city of Ai. The spies head out and shortly report back, telling Joshua that the city is minimally defended. Joshua trusts them and sends a small force to take the city. But either the spies got the count wrong, or the Israelites were out fault, as they were driven back. Joshua was so upset that he tore his clothes and fell before the ark. He then asked God why they were beaten at Ai. He's convinced the other Canaanite cities will hear of their loss and come to attack. God tells him to stand up, literally dust himself off, and be a man. He then tells Joshua why they lost, that someone took something from Jericho for his personal wealth. Joshua figures out who did that and has the man and his family executed, and apparently buried all that he owned. After this, the Israelites can head back to Ai for a rematch, this time with a plan that God gave Joshua, succinctly taking their whole army to the city to beat it with an overwhelming force instead of the 3,000 from the first try. Joshua brings 30,000 along with a more comprehensive plan. I don't have the time to cover it in this episode. Just know it was tactical genius and can be found in the podcast Chapter 7, Episode 2. They capture the city, execute its king, and leave Ai in ruins. Then Joshua builds an altar and makes offerings and sacrifices. Afterwards, Joshua reads to the people all the words of the law, blessings, and curses, as found in the Pentateuch. Next come the Gibeonites, 
who had heard about the mighty Israelites and didn't want to face their army, so they resorted to the age-old strategy of trickery. After the Israelites ransacked the cities of Jericho and Ai, many of the city-states of Canaan allied together against the Israelites, including the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and the probably generic term Canaanites. The Gibeonites, who may be the same as the Hivites, took a different tact. They sent a diplomatic delegation to the Israelites, who were still encamped at Gilgal. This delegation claimed to have traveled far and wanted to make peace with the Israelites. The Israelites believed them without asking God what to do. Joshua then signed a treaty, and the leaders of the Israelite congregation swore an oath. It only took three days for the Gibeonites' story to unravel, with the Israelites learning they were merely neighbors. The implication was that the Israelites should have asked God what to do. Instead, they were in a bind, with the law and oaths being as it was. So, the Israelites enslaved the Gibeonites, making them work as the hewers of wood and the drawers of water. Next, the Israelites battled and defeated the allied Amorite kings on what's become known as the day the sun stood still. Not to be forgotten, the moon performed the same miracle. That wasn't the only spectacular part of the battle, as heavy stones also fell from the sky on the Amorites, so many that more Amorites were killed by stones than by Israelite swords. Not only is this found in the book of Joshua, but also in the lost book of Jasher. A few Amorites escaped, including their kings, but their resistance wasn't for long as they were all captured and executed. After this part of Joshua, the text gets less specific about the people and places the Israelites would battle and defeat, almost turning into a simple list, a list that glosses over a bunch of history. Places like Makeda in southern Canaan and Libna located closer to the coast. In both of these cases, every one of the residents was put to the sword, but the Israelites didn't try to take Jerusalem. They lay siege, albeit a short one, to Lachish, then defeated it too, and once again killed everyone there, just as God had instructed, so that they could resist the temptation of their religions. In a few instances, Several of the many Canaanite kings would attempt to ally, but they all would meet the same fate as the previous five Amorite kings, just without the sun and moon stopping their orbits. The text is replete with the names of places that were easily defeated, along with several that required sieges. And there's something else. As the list grew longer, instead of every town and village being listed, the text began to list only the major cities, noting that it was defeated along with its king and its towns and every person in it. Essentially, the text is becoming less specific and more efficient. A conquering of the general region, just like the divine had told them to do. There were major cities like Hebron and Eglon, and regions like the Negev. And they seemed to have learned from their experience at Ai. In most, if not all cases, instead of dividing the army and fighting multiple cities at once, the Israelites maintained a single, overwhelming force. 
the ancient version of shock and awe, picking off their enemies one at a time, an overwhelming force meeting a divided and surprised enemy. Obviously, an effective strategy, which was combined with a scorched earth practice. From Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon, a huge amount of territory conquered in a few words. After this military expedition and conquest in southern Canaan, Joshua and the troops would return to their encampment at Gilgal, on the west bank of the Jordan, and near the first conquered city of Jericho. The implication, and it's never explicitly stated, but that the Israelites defeated all of southern Canaan, razed all the towns, plundered the valuables, then left the territory empty, returning to where they had started. Next, the Israelites turned their attention to the territory to be captured in northern Canaan. But the kings of these cities and villages weren't going to be surprised, nor were they going down in a piecemeal fashion. Instead, they chose to unite. How many united, we don't really know, as only a few were specifically mentioned, and there was the catch-all phrase of the kings in the hill country, in the lowland, in the west, in various other regions and directions. About the only specific person mentioned is King Jabin of Hazer, who was the initial organizer of a loose alliance. These guys weren't messing around and proved that the adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend is as old as history itself. Their forces were well armed, said to have many horses and chariots. To this point, we're never told that the Israelites had any such mobility-enhancing armaments. The Allies meet up and encamp at the waters of Merim, the nearly modern Lake Hula, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. God speaks to Joshua and tells him not to be afraid, as the Israelites will prevail. Joshua takes God's words to heart, assembles his entire army, and advances to the enemy's camp, a daring move that surprised them. According to the text, the Israelites attacked the assembled force and chased them, killing everyone. But that wasn't all. They also hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots, something God told them to do. While burning their chariots is pretty self-explanatory, hamstringing horses is exactly what it sounds like. Vicious, but likely the quickest way to render a horse useless in the pre-firearm era. That time period was brutal. After this, the Israelites revert to their previous strategy and began picking off the northern cities one at a time in this case, apparently starting with the places that had been part of the alliance. From a tactical perspective, this made sense, as these cities were already in a weakened state. But not everything was the same. Unlike they had done in southern Canaan, in the north, the Israelites didn't burn every city. They also pillaged these places of everything of value and seized the livestock. When they were done, all of the places were defeated. The text seems to indicate that all of the battles took some time, so it wasn't quick, but we don't know how long. And no one sought peace, save the trickster Gibeonites. Not that it should have mattered. God had told them not to let anyone live, even if they sought peace. 
the risk from their religions were just too great. In this part of the narrative, the giant Anakim make another appearance, having been last seen about 40 years earlier, when the spies traveled through Canaan, and now they had much fewer numbers and were living in the area around Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. After this brief mention, and now that the fighting is done, it's time to allot the territory. But before that, in Joshua 12, Joshua gives a condensed history of all the things the Israelites have done since crossing the Jordan, the boundaries, and the 31 different kings and places conquered. Then, the narrative skips ahead, as we're told that Joshua was old and advanced in years. What follows is a list of all the places remaining to be conquered, including all the regions of the Philistines, which included where the remaining giants lived. Setting the stage for the battle between David and Goliath some centuries later. After this, there are almost five complete chapters concerning the specific boundaries of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, both east and west, Caleb, Judah, and Ephraim. Detail after detail, from this city to that, along this river or stream, from this tree to that lake, like a surveyor giving a report and it leaves several tribes out. Apparently, Joshua is growing weary and impatient as he tells the people, How long will you be slack about going in and taking possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may begin to go throughout the land, writing a description of it with a view to their inheritances. Then come back to me. They do as told, returning with the remaining territory split up and agreed upon portions. After their return, lots are cast, and the balance of territory is divvied up with the boundaries of those remaining tribes described in less than two chapters. After this, Joshua is given a town to live in, Timnath Sarah, a town he would rebuild, then live, and die in, which means everyone has a place to go home to except the Levites. Since they were the priest, they would get no contiguous territory and instead be ascribed specific towns throughout every other tribe's land. With these towns came the pasture land that lay next to it, giving their livestock a place to graze and allowing them to live off their own income. In addition to that, the priesthood would produce. Also, a very small subset of the Levites' towns would be named as cities of refuge, where an accused murderer could flee and seek justice. I've covered this concept a few times previously, so I'll just pass by it in this instance. With the conquering complete and the territory secured and divided, the fighting men from the eastern tribes Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were sent home. When they left, they were allowed to take their portion of the booty captured from all of the defeated Canaanite cities and towns, booty that included silver, gold, bronze, iron, and a large quantity of clothing and livestock. As the eastern tribes were going home, they built a great altar, and this marked the beginning, perhaps, of the squabbling between the tribes. The western tribes got wind of the great altar, and the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh to make war against their eastern brothers. And do note that these eastern warriors had just helped these same people win their territory from the Canaanites. 
So much for gratitude, and that didn't take long. But before a battle, a peace mission. The western tribe sent the priest Phineas, who was the son of the high priest Eleazar, to the eastern tribes, along with what are described as ten chiefs, likely high-ranking family members, one from each of the tribal families of the western Israelites. When they finally met up, the western tribes accused the eastern of stoking the wrath of God against everyone, thinking that the altar was meant to replace the one in the tabernacle. After hearing all of this, the eastern leaders finally spoke up, telling their accusers that what they did was in reverence of God, and that they are being falsely accused. Their only intent was to memorialize that, despite the river separating the people, they all worshipped the same God. This was enough to satisfy the accusers with everyone returning home. In the beginning of chapter 23, in the very first sentence, we're told that the events that followed were a long time after everything before this chapter. By now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and he summoned the people to address them. What he tells them was nearly the same thing that he told the eastern tribes when they were headed home after the Canaan conquest, that God helped them defeat the Canaanites, just as he promised, to obey the laws given to them by Moses, do not mix with the Canaanites, and certainly do not adopt any of their religious practices. They cannot marry Canaanite women, as if they do, God will not continue to drive them out. Joshua warns the Israelites that the remaining Canaanites could prove to be a trap for them. Joshua then tells the people he is about to die, but quickly circles back to God's promises, reminding them that God never failed to fulfill his promises. And with this came another warning, that God also promised destruction if the people turned away from him, and they too will perish from the land. Joshua gathers all of the tribes at Shechem. When they assemble here, Joshua gives the people the Reader's Digest version of their history from Abraham's father through their present day, focusing mostly on the conquest of Canaan. He also reminds the people that it was God that had given them a land on which they had not labored and towns that they had not built, the place they now call home. Also given to them were the fruits of the vineyards and olive groves that they did not plant. All of this pointing out that the Israelites killed off the Canaanites, moved into their houses, and took over their already tilled and planted agricultural land, just like they were told would happen back in Exodus. Joshua tells them that they must choose who they will serve. The God that has blessed them so much are the foreign gods, but as for he and his house, they will serve the Lord. The people answer him that they recognize what God has done for them and will not turn their backs on him, but will serve him, if only. Then Joshua warns them again about the consequences of serving foreign gods. He tells them to live up to their word, to put away their foreign gods, and to serve and obey the one true God. It was with this and at Shechem that the covenant was renewed. According to the text, he wrote it in the book of the law of God. This is generally thought to refer to the Pentateuch, as recorded by Moses. He then took a large stone and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord, telling the people that the stone will memorialize their renewed covenant. 
Then they were all sent home. After this, Joshua died when he was 110 years old. He was buried on his own land at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. The next sentence tells us that the people remained faithful to God all throughout Joshua's life, even through the lives of the elders who outlived Joshua. Then the history circles way back, all the way to Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, the death of Joseph, and a reminder, Joseph, just like Joshua, died when he was 110 years old. When he died, he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus 13 reads that Moses took Joseph's bones with the people for the Exodus journey. It was here, finally, some 400 years, give or take, after Joseph's death, that he finally makes it back to his homeland. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem, in the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hammer, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Once again, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim were named in a singular reference. Finally, in the last verse of chapter 23, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, and the second high priest dies too. He was buried at Gibeah, the town of his son and the new high priest, Phinehas. And with all of these deaths and burials, the book of Joshua wraps up, as does this chapter of the podcast. Join me next week when I'll begin the next chapter, covering the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.